Secret Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Tim Liberecht here with me from Berlin. Welcome so much to my podcast, Tim. Uh, great to be here, Vesna. Thanks so much for the invitation. Tim is a German-American author and entrepreneur and the co-founder and co-CEO of the Business Romantic Society that helps organizations and individuals create transformative visions, stories, and experiences. He's also the co-founder and the co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business, a global think tank and a community for leaders and change makers with a mission to humanize business. Uh, so Tim, after 15 years in California, mainly Silicon Valley, You've recently returned to Berlin. Uh, why? And then I'm just curious, what did you learn from your years in, in California? Yeah, um, I, I was in San Francisco for 14 years. And before that, I went to grad school in Los Angeles, which is the reason why I left um, my mm -hmm. home country, Germany, in 2003 and moved from Berlin to Los Angeles, where I met my wife. And, uh, and was lucky enough to, to be offered a job after my graduate studies for a German-American software company. So I was able to work. Um, and yeah, and then I got stuck in California, which is at the time it was very attractive, you know, to be there in terms of the work opportunities. And of course, it was the hotbed of innovation. And it was like the, you know, the high time of, of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley. And I worked at a design and innovation company, Frog Design, for seven years as um, the head of marketing. And it was really my professional coming of age. I had worked before in, you know, parallel to my studies in Germany and as a consultant, but but it was really like the beginning of my my professional career in earnest in, in Silicon Valley. And it was an amazing time. I mean, I learned so much. I was looking over the shoulders of great designers. We worked with a lot of Fortune 500 brands and tech companies. We worked with Netflix before anybody knew them, you know, with, with Apple back in the days, uh, even before my time there and many other Uh, tech companies. And it was fascinating. I think what, what was very liberating for me coming from Germany to California was just like that, this, this sort of the sky is the limit optimism, the glass half full, you know, you can do anything you want, right. you can achieve anything you like. And, uh, and to some degree, if you're privileged enough to enter that world as, you know, as a European with, you know, a decent education, then the system of course favors you. And, you know, there, there, there are not a lot of limits Um, and it was, it was, it was a great time, but at the same time, after a while, especially when our daughter was born in 2009 and, you know, my wife who's American and I, we asked ourselves the question, like, where do we want a daughter to grow up? Uh, then you think a little bit more maybe about the value system that you live in and the cracks in the Silicon, Silicon Valley system, they really began to show, um, you know, uh, around 2010-2011, and ultimately, I think I was I was both intrigued but also appalled by the kind of exponential, you know, bottom line, exponential growth oriented thinking that's become such a hallmark of of Silicon Valley. And I was craving, I was craving Europe. I was craving football, <laughs> watching a watching football in the stadium, and I was craving. Uh, a society that is not so much about winning at all costs, you know, about professional advancement and, and material wealth and status and just has other 
other sort of spaces and values as well. And this is ultimately, I think, why we returned in, in 2017, or well, I, why I returned to Germany with my family. Yeah, but when you intend the cracks and in, in the cracks that be began to show, is is that the thing you intend? Like the materialism, the the winning thing? Yeah, that was definitely, I, I think it just became very one-dimensional. I remember sitting in, in San Francisco at some point, the city had be become so expensive that pretty much, you know, all sort of bohemians and artists and creative people and, and you know, just different, different, social strata from tech had had to to flee the city could just not afford to live there anymore so you ended up sitting in restaurants or in cafes and the only conversations you overheard were about you know seed funding series a funding like how big is your series a how big is your series b um uh you know conversations about software and it became it became a monoculture very very one-dimensional that is not healthy it's also not very attractive and i think uh, if we look at san francisco right now um, it's a real pity, you know, and um, it, it pains me to see how, how, you know, how strange the city has become and a lot of people are leaving. And it's, it's just one of those times again, at the same time, I think the Bay area is incredible. Like the, the whole country, I believe is, is very resilient. So it'll recover. It'll reinvent itself. It's, it's going to come back stronger. I, I believe, I hope. When I moved there in, in 2004, it was much more diverse, much more vibrant, and there was a great kind of, you know, subculture and, and art scene going on. Even though, even at that time, it was already very hard, I think, to sort of make a living with those and those professions in the city. <clears throat> but my wife, who grew up in the Bay Area, tells me that, you know, in, in the 90s or so, it was very, very different. And we live in Berlin now in Germany, and, and she's, she tells me and says, you know, Berlin now reminds me so much of the Bay Area in the 90s in the 80s when she grew up because it's so diverse so international you know and uh, there's so many different pockets of life so i think i would wish for that and i think i would just wish that and that's one of the the cardinal sins or the original sins of the the us is right that it's built on this myth of american exceptionalism and at the same time if you look at the reality and this obscene social inequality the, and all of the private money that, you know, all of the, the, the revenues and the profits that are going into private pockets rather than being reinvested in public infrastructure. I mean, that's just appalling, right? If you look at the quality of the roads, the public, of public transportation, the school system, I mean, it, it's just, you, you just can't believe it that a, a, an area as rich as the Bay Area has such horrible, you know, infrastructure and quality of life at the end of the day, unless you belong, you know, to the upper one, two percent. And that's just obscene. So I, I would wish for, I think, for a translation of the incredible entrepreneurial spirit and, and business acumen and technological acumen. I would wish that it actually produced more value for, you know, for broader parts of the population living in the barrier, but the world overall and not just filling the pockets of, um, you know, the elites. Mm. Interesting to hear this, really. I'm just curious to know what would you define is is your really passion that thing that you are also truly willing to suffer for and that you may maybe already suffered for. I would say, I think there's probably two. I mean, the, I guess the the one the one thing I'm really passionate about and that I still don't quite understand is love. Um, I, I think that's just what everybody's passionate about, and it's just kind of this mysterious thing that you can never really resolve. So I think falling in love, <clears throat> staying in love, being in a relationship, 
um, I think love is just completely like pulls the rug under your feet. And, you know, it's just like this total loss of control if you're really passionate about someone. And that, that's been a passion that I enjoy, but that's also, you know, been painful uh, in many ways. And the other passion is football. <laughs> and I don't know which of the two is more important. But um, football really is a matter of, of uh, life and death, obviously, if you're a big fan. And I'm a big Barcelona fan, actually. So you can imagine, I don't know if you've been following football, but just a few weeks ago, they suffered a humiliating defeat against Bayern Munich that was heartbreaking. And if you're a real football fan and really attached to a team, I mean, especially when I was living in the States, I was watching all of the games of Barcelona on TV. Got up very early in the morning at 6.30 or 7 to watch Bundesliga or Spanish football and and I was yelling. I mean, I was so I'm so I'm such a passionate football fan. So that's I'm not sure I would die for it, but um, yeah, it is a big passion. Mm. Um, I've been watching. I think most of the you know public talks uh, on um, YouTube that that um, that you've made, and also the very popular TED talks. Um, there are two I definitely want to mention, of course, the three ways to lose control of your brand. And then there is, uh, of course, the one, uh, four ways to build a, a human company in the age of machines. Uh, I think that's like me and another two, three million people that have watched this. So um, really congratulations to these talks. They're wonderful. Um, and um, But you're also saying that, that in the face of, of, of arti artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, we need this new radical uh, humanism. Um, how would you explain what that means? Radical humanism. I actually am. I'm even, and this this is maybe a position that I may have changed since I gave those two talks that you mentioned. Humanism, if you look at it strictly, is actually sort of a belief that was born in the Enlightenment and puts the human at the center of of the universe, if you will, basically providing humans with a lot of agency viewing them as the masters of their fortune based on rational thinking and empirical evidence. Um, you know, human is sort of the master of nature in a way through science, through technology. That's a view that I don't subscribe to. Uh, and that's a view that I believe has actually hurt us. If you look at climate change and uh, everything that's happening and all the other crises that are now breaking out, I think that this artificial separation between humans and nature has really come to haunt us. So humanism is probably not even a term I would use anymore. I think we need to move beyond humanism in a traditional sense. What I mean by, by human is also not what many brands and companies are now marketing as the humanization of the workplace or the humanization of business. Because, I mean, aside from the fact that very often it's just lip service in a marketing ploy, I believe that this talk of humanization ultimately caters to human needs, such as convenience, well-being, and ease of use, and comfort, and frictionlessness. And that's all okay. I mean, you know, of course, we want products and services and businesses to enhance well-being. But if you look at the workplace, if you look at products, I think often that means that, you know, you, you, you have a nicer workplace setting or, you know, a product or service is more convenient. Again, that's, that's all fine. But I think to be human at work must go beyond that. To be human really means that you are allowed to be sad, that you're allowed to be weak, that you can be vulnerable. Because ultimately what distinguishes us humans from machines is 
that we are vulnerable, that we can suffer. Going back to the question you asked about passion, right? We can suffer physically, but also psychologically, emotionally. And um, machines can't, you know, but all living things and animals can. And I think it's that appreciation that should give us a new, some new guidance in terms of how we want to show up at work and how we want to design our organizations. It's, it's ultimately, I think it's sort of almost like against this forced positivity that I've seen really very closely in Silicon Valley, right? It's all about being optimistic and positive. But I always say that the, the truly human workplace is a workplace that allows us to be sad rather than enabling us to be constantly happy. Hmm. So really celebrating authenticity somehow, and, and uh, right? Yeah, and I say this, and I think in my in my TED talk about beautiful business as well that to be authentic means to be ugly. It doesn't mean that you. It doesn't mean like to be beautiful all the time, you know, on the very superficial level. But if you can show your true self, and that is of course always also ugly and messy and unorganized and wild and and angry and sad, right? And th then I think that's real authenticity. Um, that kind of authenticity, I believe, is still very, very rare at the workplace. And but do you uh, can you exemplify some companies or, or, or that you've experienced or seen or observed where you feel that there is this um, you know bring hundred percent of yourself kind of to work um, like speaking the actual truth is okay. I have not come across a company where that is the case. Do you, have you? <laughs> I, I mean, I can. I, there's definitely companies that I greatly admire, such as Danone or Patagonia, or also uh, much lesser known startups, right? Where I feel like, okay, they have real, authentic leadership. Many um, hidden champions in Germany, many small, medium-sized, family-run businesses have a very authentic culture with, you know, all the the the, 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 the pluses and negatives in Italy and elsewhere, right? Um, manufacturing companies. I think they're real, they're authentic. And, um, but I, I have a hard time pinpointing a company and, and say, well, this is sort of the quintessential beautiful business, or this is the quintessential uh, human company. I think what I would like to accomplish is with my books and my talks is, is, is to basically provide a vision for what it might look like and remind us of of an ideal that we may have forgotten. But I, it's not so much like a collection of case studies that already exist in which case I wouldn't need to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At, at least, not, you know, in my, in my work, that that's just not how I um, sort of look at things. Mm. And um, I mean, business is so, so much more, of course, than the bottom line, uh, but your book uh, of beautiful business um, from last year is, is an, is an anthology of more than like 40 voices or so exploring these new visions for the future and um, the future of labor and future of leadership and so on. Is there any way that you can, in a short um, way, just comment on the main insights from these 40 voices and their vision? The book of beautiful business was published last year. Yeah. And it is indeed an anthology. So we reached out to our community that we have built over the past few years worldwide, the house of beautiful business and collected their voices essentially and so what we really pride ourselves with is that is a very diverse community uh, one of our members actually once called it the most unlike-minded community on the planet which means we create a safe space and we we provide a platform for all kinds of, of views on the future of business but it, it isn't that we are driving an agenda right and have to align everybody and 
that's very much expressed in the book. There's a lot of different perspectives in there from people like Susan Cain, who wrote the book White, um, to Jonathan Cook, who um, has been a longtime member of the House of Beautiful Business. And I would say the one thing that ties it all together is just that we uh, invite people to draw from the arts and the humanities. So we really try to bring different disciplines to mainstream business and very perhaps surprising insights. Uh, we write about melancholy. We write about ritual. We write about gardening. Um, we write about the power of being quiet, of, of silence. Um, those are sort of qualities that we try to instill in regular business life. And I think many of the essays in the, in the book of beautiful business are about that. You know, they either portray people who, who have embodied these virtues or they are basically proposals for, for those qualities and how to bring them to business. And some of the essays are very practical. Um, so there's an essay there, for example, about like the future of talent management and how talent management can be more human. And, and some of them are, are very philosophical, right? Um, uh, about nothingness and, and why it's good to do nothing uh, rather than uh, this rush to action that we so often see in management. So it's a real broad range of, of insights, very, very typical for the House of Beautiful Business, I would say. Hmm. I, I like that, uh, that idea. I mean, because at the end of the day, each uh, person and each company and each system, whatever system we are, um, we all have our journey. So there is never, of course, a success formula, like do this and you, everything's going to flow, uh, but rather like giving a portfolio of things, of ideas uh, to people that they can apply to their lives or even to, the, to their businesses. That's great. Um, but, uh, Tim, I'm, I'm curious about um, your transformational points in your life that have influenced you most uh, so far. What are they? Mm. I think there's so many small moments. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I can't think of sort of big, it's always funny because you, you, you probably tempted to think, oh, it was this and this, it was the birth of my daughter, it was my wedding, it was, it was <laughs> and yeah, they're all important moments that are very that I remember very fondly, but it's more sort of the small moments. I remember one moment in particular, professionally speaking, when I, I hosted a hackathon when I was working back at Frog Design and it was called Reinvent Business. And I think it was probably 10 years ago. And in a strange way, actually, I'm, I'm sort of back at it. You know, now when we talk about the Great Wave, which is this, this uh, annual gathering of the House of Beautiful Business this year, a virtual hybrid festival that we'll, we'll uh, host in a few weeks, it's we actually literally say it's it's a festival to reinvent business. So it's funny how I'm sort of back at this term. But anyway, back then I hosted this hackathon in San Francisco and I invited uh, hundreds of people who came for the weekend to think about this question, how we can make business more human and how we can reinvent it and explore very radical ideas. And then and I enlisted some partners. Then I remember that and it was there was a committee of judges um, that was looking at the, the proposals that were contributed by the participants. And I remember this one moment when I walked into this room where the judges were considering and deliberating whom to award the prizes. And I was just sort of thinking, wow, you know, isn't that, I, I, it's just kind of amazing that, that, that there are people here, you know, who, who we didn't pay, you know, they did it sort of on the weekend voluntarily. And they're so passionate about this topic that, you know, that they have heated conversations about this hackathon. And I, I think for me, it just showed, I, I think I've realized that that's what I want to do. Uh, both in terms of the topic, but also in terms of like, I, I love curating people. I love bringing people together. I love um, holding a space and, and infusing it with energy. So that in many ways was a real uh, pivotal moment. And I think the other, the other big moments for me were 
of course, the first house of beautiful business in Barcelona when we rented a guild house in the old town of Barcelona and invited people. I had a similar feeling like at the hackathon where I, was, where I really sensed, oh, wow, this is striking a chord, right? People are craving this. They want this. And we have something to give. I have something to give to them. And that was quite a profound insight and that I hadn't had before. It was sort of this moment at which I found my purpose, you know? It's like, this is it. This is my calling. Um, yeah. wonderful in terms of businesses if we look at the companies as you know great systems or instruments uh, that can do a lot they really have a lot of power Um, so my question is um, do you believe that there is like one common denominator for all businesses actually um, that can you know work on our long-term agenda I believe Businesses need to become more beautiful, <laughs> not surprisingly. <laughs> and what I mean by that is not um, more beautiful products in terms of better designs or better design workplaces. That too. Um, but I think it's really beautiful from the inside. And that means that they have a soul, that they have a spirit, that they have something invisible at their heart that is that maybe cannot be expressed or cannot be quantified and that's driving them. I... Um, I, I believe beautiful business also, of course, means that these are humble or humbled organizations that know their role in the universe, that appreciate the, the connection to the environment, that uh, have respect for the others, you know, that are tender rather than aggressive and, and focused on growth at all costs. So that, that, that is my definition of beautiful. It's a mix of aesthetic intelligence, of, of ethics, but also of, of um, emotional richness. And if you combine the three together, then I think you, you end up with beautiful business. And I think beautiful businesses can produce value for themselves and for society, but they can also be great vehicles of, of making meaning, of, of giving people a chance to learn and to grow. And given how much time we spend with product services, but also as workers at the workplace, I mean, this is a pretty big mandate and pretty big responsibility for businesses that they, you know, can aspire to live up to. Mm. And also there's so much um, facts and, and, and input that is really backing that these kind of companies uh, are exactly because of this uh, also uh, more successful profit wise, results wise. Yeah. It's, it's, by the way, it's very interesting that, um, I mean, first of all, I think that any, um, and there, there are a number of studies that correlate um, having a strong purpose and to a stronger intrinsic motivation and the higher intrinsic motivation results in more creativity, um, more innovation. Um, so there's a correlation between cultures of trust where people can show up authentically um, and um, I think business results at the end of the day. Um, so companies with a strong purpose, with a strong vision, I think are able to attract better talent and, and retain it. You know, we know that, especially for younger generations, that is a very, very important ingredient. Um, interestingly enough, over the past few months, also during the COVID-19 crisis, I've just come across a study that showed that actually um, for the first time, uh, social impact investing has outperformed traditional investing. So it's interesting that also from an investment perspective, um, companies with a, you know, a social mission or social impact funds and investments um, initiatives have produced higher higher returns. So yeah, I mean there is a there is a business reason for uh, for being beautiful as well. However, I just want to caution us that that's not why we should 
aspire to be beautiful. You know, that, that's good. And of course, business needs to produce, uh, needs to make money. I, I, I don't want to belittle that or dismiss it. Of course, that's at the core. But at the same time, I think it's very important that we also understand businesses as an enterprise to for us to learn, to grow, to to shape the future, to to build reality, to make meaning, which is, uh, you know, as important, in my opinion, as um, the more material outcome that, of course, we want to appreciate as well. Mm. Yeah, no, no, I totally, totally agree. It's just that if anybody is hesitant about, well, that would be nice, but why there is this, uh, you know, obvious extra reason. So one would think, you know, in the best of worlds, you know, why... Why don't we have more of those companies? And I think it's connected to leadership, true leaders, um, heading companies or maybe owners, founders of these companies. Uh, if they have a personal um, conviction and need and passion for these aspects of, of life where they want to, uh, like they see their companies as a container of, of you know, uh, a lot of possibilities and, as you say, growth and, and, and ways of, of evolving, um, then then they will drive the company in that sense. If they don't have that within them as an awareness, so to say, they, they won't. So I guess it comes boils down to the, the, the leader, the, the people. It, it, it really does. And I think it's, you know, we always look at business and we think of it as, as this very rational machine, right? And I think managers in particular are very prone to pointing to, well, here's the business logic. This is how it works. You know, there are certain conventions, certain, paradigms that we need to adhere to but we totally forget the if you will the, the the bottom of the iceberg that is under the water right and that's basically relationships and emotions so does any organization really have a rational agenda and execute on that no not at all you know it's a messy it's like <laughs> it's a messy affair you know uh, whether a project fails or a product fails whether an organization thrives is is a is a matter of course of a strategic plan but also of a matter of all the emotions and relationships that sort of play into it and ultimately i think a leader or an organization will will do something um whether that is business to consumer or business to business because they're into it you know because they're passionate about it because they are emotionally attached to it um and then of course there's facts figures and data that back that up and might might provide more evidence or ammunition or backup But I, I really thoroughly believe that uh, emotions are, you know, are, are one of the main driving factors here. This is still something that I believe we underestimate. And how would you define a leader, actually? A leader is, is I think, what is really important for a leader is to be able to step beside her or himself and and see themselves in a greater context so there's a certain humility that's needed it's it's an appreciation of the universe around you and then seeing your role in it and then finding finding and crafting and articulating a story that is so inspiring that other people will follow you um i think that is really really important you have to have it's this old notion of the promised land there needs to be some kind of utopia some kind of a dream that you're dreaming that is so inspiring or so unique And so authentic that other people are inspired by it and fall in love with it and are willing to then be loyal to this, this to this vision. And not, not so much the person, but this vision that this person represents. That's one quality. And the other quality is, um, and that's maybe the big distinction also to, to a, let's say, a manager, is to, to, to grow others, right? To allow others to grow and, 
and define your own success as the success of others. This sounds so trivial, but it's so hard because of course we're all driven by ego and it's actually very hard. It's very hard for me myself to, to, to sort of recognize, oh, wow, you know, uh, there is someone who's more talented or um, their growth is more important than my own, you know, recognition or my own um, self-realization or the fact that I was the one, you know, who came up with this idea. Um, so I think that's, that's really the, the hallmark of a great leader. And I think we're uh, great leaders just keep learning and keep being humbled, I, I believe. And they're very, I, I met a number of CEOs who, or, or leaders in general who, at that level, I think are remarkably self-aware. Hmm. Is there anybody you want to mention that uh, can inspire others? Well, I think my own, I had wonderful bosses. So, uh, for example, Doreen Lorenzo, who was my boss, the CEO of uh, Frog Design when I worked there, she hired me. She she was probably the the personified authentic leader. I mean, just so real, you know, always honest feedback. Um, just just sort of lived, you know, um, I think what you would expect from a, from a leader. And in, in, in so many ways, she was so inspiring. And um, someone I haven't worked with, but I was observing is Emmanuel Faber, the CEO of Danone. When he came in, he basically created a manifesto and he really transformed um, this, this food maker company. Um, and um, I was also quite surprised, like how, how deeply entrenched he is in the humanities and philosophy. Um, and I think that that's sometimes surprising that um, when, when you, um, um, you know, hear people or CEOs sort of reflect that, um, that they, they can operate within the logic of business, but many of them are incredibly educated very broadly. And many of them are suffering as well, because I think they're kind of constrained by the system, even though they, they would perhaps be able to bring even much more to the table if they were allowed to. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, from my experience so far, I think that, the leaders who have a very diverse um, life experience are, are also the best in the sense that they can relate to so mm -hmm. they can relate to people and to all situations and that brings them to become i guess also humble and also i love when people who are leaders leaders really um they can also afford to say um you know i don't know but mm -hmm. let's find mm -hmm. out together right so the that they are humble enough to understand that they don't know, uh, but there is, they're still sticking to this, as you say, the big vision and direction. And they're eager to understand how to discover some new aspects together with other people. So, so true. I mean, for example, Ara Colau, the mayor of Barcelona, uh, I read a piece about her, I think it was in the New Yorker, and uh, she was cited with the statement saying, well, I'm very, you know, I, I, I'm very proud that I don't have a solution always immediately. I have to think about things. I don't have an answer. I don't know. <laughs> and this is, this is a new, maybe a more feminine business leadership culture. I don't mean this just by gender. I just mean feminine in, in a sense of how we typically stereotype these, these qualities that I think it's just this comfort with, or being comfortable with ambiguity, you know, with with just sort of holding a space rather than rushing into action all the time immediately. And I think that's a quality that we need to see more more of in the in the coming years and decades. Mm. Yeah, and 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 do that without becoming like anxious because we are then feeling like we're standing still. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so. Um, what about you, like 10, 15 years ago or so, when you look back, is there any kind of advice you would give yourself? Take it easy. <laughs>
I believe when I look back at myself and I mean, I don't know how much I have changed actually. I, I don't even know actually how much I, I don't know how much I have changed. Sometimes I know I, I feel when I was 18, I was live. I mean, this sounds horrible probably, but when I was 18, I, I, I had the same principles and things I believed in that I have now. I just know more now. Uh, and hopefully I haven't become disappointed or cynical. I think that's the, I, I think the main thing is not to become cynical. You know, to avoid that, that scars of disappointments make you cynical, make you um, close up yourself. And I, I think you, you, you still need to be able to fall in love, basically, with an idea or a vision or a person uh, and not close yourself off. But when I look at myself, like, I mean, I was definitely, when I was living in Silicon Valley, I was just kind of crazy in terms of work hours and, and how much also status and money meant to me. And I mean, now I'm 48 and of course this is such a cliche, but yeah, other things matter more now. And I, I, I'm so happy every morning I wake up and, uh, and I, I mean, there's rarely a day where I feel like, oh my God, I'm dreading work or today I really don't want to work, you know, because the work that I'm doing being self-employed is, it's just makes me happy. It makes me so happy. And that's such a privilege. And so it took me 40 years to get there, you know, in a way. Um, but, uh, I think, Ultimately, it, 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 it comes and I can only like I hope that everybody, you know, will, will come to that point as well. So I think that's my advice to myself. Just take it easy. Be patient. You know, find out, find out what really matters and find out what you're passionate about, you know, and do that. Hmm. So it becomes your life's work kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, but but um, do you ever feel lonely? I have to say that I love the team and I'm really, uh, I don't feel lonely with the work on the House of Beautiful Business or the Business Romantic Society, the company basically that I co-founded that's putting it on because we have a small team and a community and there is just so much communication and action, even though we, we are organized virtually. Um, it, it's, I actually feel very much at home there and we're friends in a way and family. I mean, really are. <laughs> and I feel lonely when I, I wrote two books and I, the, the writing is really lonely and the thinking is really lonely. And it's probably also a required solitude to actually produce any meaningful thoughts is to be lonely. I don't like being lonely. I like, um, I like being with people at the same time. Uh, and you can be lonely, of course, with people as well. But in general, lonely, um, yeah, I'm, the, the reason why I was saying immediately yes is I think, I think lonely, loneliness is just such an existential condition in a way that sometimes you wonder um, you know, um, like what would your friends think of you if you really said what you think, you know, and what is your place in the world? And, um, does it really matter what you're doing? And does, does anybody really understand? Um, so there's an existential loneliness, of course, on this planet that, that I, that sometimes the Germans call it Weltschmerz, right? Or a certain melancholia that I'm very familiar with, um, for sure. And I'm trying to use it for my work. <laughs> but it's it's interesting. Your your last name Leberecht is like living right, living in the right way. It's a Prussian name. My dad is from from Berlin. So it's a real Prussian name. It's kind of like a moral imperative. Um, yeah, do the right thing or live right. Yeah, and I, I try to remind myself every day. So you see, you you, you were born with this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good. But um, just going back for a moment to the companies again, what, what, do you, what do you think is the absolutely most important thing for companies to focus on right, right now? Right now, in the wake of this pandemic, uh, it's this impossible stretch between, on the one hand, restoring normalcy and 
making sure that the operations continue and and at the same time thinking thinking ahead and looking forward and really adjusting to the new reality that we're going to experience in the wake of this crisis and this is it's kind of like this um you know this quote by F Scott Fitzgerald uh, saying the the sign of a high rate intelligence that you can hold two opposing truths in your mind and still retain the ability to function I think that's what companies need to do. They need to be ambidextrous. They need to be, you know, multipolar. They need to be many companies at the same time at once. And that's really hard to do. Um, and I think we're moving from the binary world and the binary way of running business to a non-binary way of running business that is fluid, that is ambiguous, that is fuzzy. Um, you know, that is the, the new kind of quantum thinking that is going to, enter business mainstream soon or has already entered it. That's also why we call our festival the great wave, by the way, to really talk about these notions of fluidity and, and ambiguity. That, that's, that's what companies need to, need to become good at. Um, and that's very hard because we've just not been trained to do that because we've grown up in this mechanistic, rational, uh, cause and effect binary business world. And now we need to basically leave all of those tools behind and reinvent ourselves. That's what we're trying to do with the House of Beautiful Business. We try to inspire people to do so, but it's going to be it's going to be a long journey. Yeah, yeah. We need to have conviction. <laughs> um, and just my final question, Tim, to you is this one: What do you think that the world needs most at this time? Mm, I would say hope. I think hope is. I believe hope is, is the most important thing because hope really inspires everything else. Hope leads to action. Hope leads to commitment. Hope leads to optimism. Hope leads to initiatives, um, impact. But without hope, there's nothing. And right now, if I look at the state of the world with the pandemic and all the underlying crisis that it has exposed, social injustice, growing nationalism, extremism, you know, this mess that the U.S. is in with Donald Trump um, and surveillance, capitalism, and so many really dark, concerning trends that I believe there's a real chance, right, that this is going to be a very dark century. At the same time, this may sound very German. I, at the same time, I'm very, I'm also really optimistic because I believe in humans. I believe in ingenuity and I believe in beauty. And I believe that we want to lead beautiful lives. And I believe in solidarity. And that has the crisis shown as well, that we can be connected and solid, you know, and, and show solidarity. Um, but we need new narratives and we need hope and we need new stories and we need people who, who can, uh, who can bring hope. Okay, Tim, thank you so, so much. Thanks for um, sharing everything. And um, for people to find out more, where do they head? Oh, so you can find out more about the House of Beautiful Business at houseofbeautifulbusiness.com and then about our yeah. upcoming festival. It's online, offline, 30 local hubs all around the world and Zoom, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, audio, um, a, a, a massive experiment across platforms. Mm -hmm. That you can find at thegreatwave.house, thegreatwave.house. Yeah, and I hope you can all join. From October 16th to 19th, so it's a Friday of a Monday experience. Okay, great. Great, and I also want to recommend uh, uh, the books, The Business Romantic and The Book of Beautiful Business, as well as your, your TED Talks. Um, 
So remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and uh, share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Tim. And also rate and review this podcast if you uh, enjoyed it. Thanks so, so much for listening. And until next time, uh, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.